welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer. I'm going to start off this week with a quote from my favorite president, Ronald Reagan. In honor of Veterans Day, I always feel this quote is apropos. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. Or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. I feel that that's apropos. That's what our troops fight for every day. They fight for our freedom and liberty here in this country, and they do it selflessly and honorably. So thank you to them. I salute them, uh, all of our veterans, those who have served, their families. And um, I just want to say a big thank you to that since Veterans Day just passed. um, I also, coming up on this episode, Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, now retired, he spent 38 years in the military. And he's coming up. Do I do a great interview with him? We talk a, a little bit about kind of what's going on with the military and, and Trump's behavior and some of the threats he sees uh, in in facing the, the country and how things are being handled. So stay tuned for that. That's coming up in a little bit. But um, I also wanted to first start off by saying my heart is really just breaking for my fellow Americans out there in California. These wildfires are just unbelievable. I've never seen anything like this. And um, just praying for everyone out there, those who've who've lost everything, who are evacuated, who don't know the status of their homes, people who've lost their lives. Um, Hats off to the fire service that's out there trying to protect life and and property. Um, Man, just California can't catch a break. <clears throat> my agent actually lives out in one of the affected areas and thankfully so far her home is okay and her family's all right but just praying for you guys my my fellow Californians out there um and I believe that there's um a fund that you can donate to to help the LA Fire Service I was watching the People's Choice Awards the other night and they had a, a website come up I Offhand, it's escaping me, but I guess if people want to help, there's ways to help. So, praying for you guys out there in California. Hopefully, there's um, get that under control soon. What else is ongoing? Oh my goodness! Well, since the last time we spoke, there's um, there's been quite a lot going on. <laughs> We've had. Um, I, my last episode, I had the wonderful A.B. Stoddard join me. She's with Real Clear Politics, and we had some uh, great conversations about uh, the midterm election reactions and um, what happened with Jeff Sessions and him getting fired right after the midterms. And, and um, Matt Whitaker, who was Sessions' chief of staff, was his replacement put in place by Trump. Trump bypassing all of the normal people who would be in the line of succession to take over as an acting attorney general to put to, to put this guy, Matt Whitaker, in as the acting attorney general. And just as I had finished doing the last podcast episode, <clears throat> we found out more information about this Matt Whitaker. 
who was a total Trump lackey. This guy was a, he was a U.S. attorney in Iowa 12, 14 years ago. And um, he was a CNN legal analyst last year where he said all kinds of very interesting things about the Mueller investigation. Quickly, it was reported, it came out relatively quickly after he was um, uh, assigned to the acting attorney general about all these comments he made against the Mueller investigation. Well, now we know why he was installed into this position as the highest law enforcement official in the country. He's not qualified for this. He made all kinds of disparaging comments out there in the public about how the, how the Mueller investigation can be undermined, how it can be, um, you can with, withdraw funding from it so you don't necessarily have to fire Mueller. It'll just kind of die on its own because he wouldn't have the money to, um, to, to investigate. He talked about how he didn't think the Trump Tower meeting with Don Jr. and, and Manafort and, and Kushner and the Russians was a big deal. He poo-pooed that. He said, oh, anybody would take that meeting. Come on. No, anybody wouldn't take that meeting. And when you have Russians and, and, and an email that says, oh, the Russian government is sanctioning this, they're all behind it, you go to the FBI. No, you don't run and take that meeting. That is not normal, folks. He's, um, he's had quite uh, a history of making these comments against the Mueller investigation. And he's even said how he was basically auditioning on television, hoping to get Trump's attention so he could get a job in the administration. Well, obviously it worked. And now he's our freaking acting attorney general. But that's not where it all ends. That's not where it ends. It's bad enough that he made these comments that clearly show he's not a fan of Mueller or the investigation or the, the legitimacy of it. Because as acting attorney general, technically he has oversight now over the Mueller investigation, which is horrifying. But the other issue is it came out that this guy was part of a scam organization, a scam company. It was a patent company, kind of like InventHelp, where if you have a, you ever see George Foreman does, I think he's a spokesman for it. You come up with an idea and you have an invention. You want to, it's a company that helps you shepherd through the process of getting your patent approved and then they market it for you. Now that's InventHelp. They're a legit company as far as I know. But this company that Matt Whitaker was with, it was called World Patent Marketing. And the Federal Trade Commission did an investigation and shut them down because they found it to be a scam. So many people started complaining because they're paying all this money thinking, oh, this company's going to help me with my invention. And they found out that they weren't. They were getting scammed out of their money. Some people lost hundreds of thousands of dollars with this company. By the way, there were also a lot of veterans who got taken in this scam that, the, that Matthew Whitaker, our now new acting attorney general, handpicked by Trump, crony, he was on the board of this, scamming veterans out of their life savings. This is a disgrace. How did this guy get a freaking security clearance? How did this not come up? Because it's also my understanding it was reported that this company was under federal investigation. So not only did the Federal Trade Commission shut them down because they said it was a scam and fined the company $25 million, it's my understanding that, the, that, that there was a criminal investigation also opened up into this, country, in, into this company. And what did Matt Whitaker do? He was on the advisory board. 
And he also was a pitch man too. There was, there's video out there of him pitching some of their products. And then what he would do is when people started to catch on that something was fishy with this company, he went out there and started sending email responses to these people, threatening them, claiming how he was, you know, he, he has the, he was a U.S. attorney in Iowa, a federal, you know, prosecutor. So he understands the laws and these people are trying to, trying to exploit and, 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 uh, uh, what's the other term that he used, but basically threatening the people who were just trying to find out where the hell their money is and what's going on with their patents using, you know, his, the, the threat of him being a federal prosecutor and they could use the law against them. Yeah, that's a great guy. I mean, USA Today has uh, an editorial um, piece out where they go through why Matthew Whitaker is not fit to be attorney general. I mean, the list is long. He also believes that judges should have a biblical worldview. I mean, I'm a Christian, and I love the Bible, but that should not be a litmus test. He also talks about how he thinks that Marbury versus Madison, which is the landmark 1803 case that basically establishes that the courts, the Supreme Court or courts can interpret whether laws are constitutional or not, a landmark case. He thinks it's one of the worst cases ever decided by the Supreme Court. Marbury versus Madison. Any, any even, anyone who's listening out there who's taken a constitutional law class or who's a lawyer probably cringed at that. Yeah. That's who, that's who is now our acting attorney general. It's, it's ridiculous. Now, what else also happened is George Conway. Name sound familiar? That's Kellyanne Conway's husband who I actually happen to know and have met before. And I just want to say this, George Conway, if you're listening, thank you. Thank you for keeping your integrity. I have been there in conversations with him and his wife where the topic was Donald Trump and it was not a glowing conversation before she started working for him when she still worked for Ted Cruz's pack. And believe me, they are well aware, and she was well aware of the kind of person Donald Trump is. Yet she still chose to work for him. But George Conway, thank you for maintaining your integrity. On that note, his op-ed. So George Conway, he's been very active on Twitter the last couple of months, openly critical of Donald Trump and Trump's assault on the rule of law, particularly in the Mueller case. Um, he joined with, uh, Neil Katyal, who was, um, an Obama administration official, I think. Yeah. Both very well-respected lawyers. I mean, George Conway is a very successful lawyer. He was also very involved in the conservative movement in the nineties. He represented Paula Jones in her suit. Um, that's how he met Kellyanne, by the way. But if you guys ever want to look it up, you can see how they met. Um, she was in the conservative movement. So was he, and that's how they met. Um, but they wrote a piece in the New York Times basically laying out why the appointment of Matthew Whitaker is unconstitutional. We have Senate-confirmed positions, cabinet officers, right, the Department of Defense, the Attorney General, the HHS Secretary, they all have to be confirmed by the Senate. The CIA Director, confirmed by the Senate. Why? Because in the Constitution it says the role of the Senate is to advise and consent it for 
you know, the president's certain things, right? So they have to offer advice and consent. Well, there's also deputy positions in a lot of these cabinet officer uh, uh, cabinet offices where you they offer well they have to be Senate confirmed too because in case the principal officer is no longer able to perform their duties or they get fired or whatever then you have someone to step in. Well, there's a line of succession in the Department of Justice where you have Senate confirmed deputies like Rod Rosenstein. Does that name sound familiar? It should. He's the deputy AG. He's the guy who runs the Mueller investigation as well, because Jeff Sessions, when he was attorney general, had to recuse himself because of conflicts of interest. Why did Donald Trump pass over Rod Rosenstein and, and put in this lackey? Because he wants to kill the Mueller investigation. He's feeling the heat. He's been wanting to get rid of it for over a year, for a year and a half. It was Don McGahn, the White House counsel, who had to talk him off the ledge many times and probably ran interference to make sure Trump didn't do something crazy that would cause a constitutional crisis. Well, Don McGahn's not there either. He left the White House a couple weeks ago. He's out of there. He has not been replaced, as far as I'm aware. There has not been a replacement for Don McGahn yet, for White House counsel. So I don't know who's advising Donald Trump on this or who told him it was a good idea, but George Conway's piece in the New York Times lays out a pretty solid case as to why this act of not putting in a Senate-confirmed person into the, the position of the attorney general, highest law enforcement official in the land, is unconstitutional. You have to, It's considered a principal officer. And it says pretty clearly in the Constitution that the Senate has to approve that to avoid this kind of thing to begin with. To avoid the president putting in cronies in powerful positions. So this situation is not over with Matt Whitaker. They really can't do anything about this. Maybe have a couple oversight hearings. We can find out what the decision making process was perhaps. But there's really not much they can do. The Senate seems to have no interest in protecting Mueller. Mitch McConnell shamefully came out and said that there is no reason to move forward with legislation to protect the Mueller investigation and said that, you know, talked about presidential harassment, the role of oversight by the Democrats. I mean, I hope they don't overstep, but they didn't say anything about presidential harassment when they had umpteen hearings on Benghazi and Fast and Furious, as my friend Kurt Bardella pointed out, because he worked on those committees. It wasn't presidential harassment when Obama was in office and they were doing their legitimate oversight function. So the hypocrisy continues with my Republicans when it comes to this president. It's infuriating, but we'll see what happens. I'm hoping that people continue to dig up dirt on this Matt Whitaker and it forces him to resign because the president of the United States, he's doubling down, of course. Well, the, the interesting thing, though, <laughs> is that Trump tried to back away once some of this information came out that I guess they weren't aware of before about Whitaker. I don't know what kind of vetting process they have in the White House anymore, but clearly it's not a very good one. All you got to do is Google and, you know, it's pretty obvious what's happening. But he said um, when he was on his way over to Paris over the weekend, oh, I don't really know Matt Whitaker. I don't know. I don't know him like that. He was Jeff Sessions guy. And, but there's video, there's audio of Trump saying that he knows him and that he's a great guy. Of course he knows him. Does anybody believe that bullshit? Of course he knows him. 
You don't just appoint someone to the attorney general position that you don't know. But because there's controversy, he was like, oh, well, I don't know him socially. And he put out even a tweet. No, I think he'll be a great attorney general, but I didn't really know him socially. Wait, what? Please. Matt Whitaker was angling to become the attorney general for months. But he's a snake in the grass and Jeff Sessions didn't realize it until it was too late. And Whitaker ended up getting that job. This is very Nixonian, and I just see a constitutional crisis in the horizon. But um, I don't know. We're going to stay tuned with that. But this Matt Whitaker's bad news. Hey, guys. Our friends at Transatlantic Real Estate have created a unique investment opportunity that combines legal marijuana and crowdfunding. Now, after you let that sink in for a second, think about the growing momentum around legal marijuana in this country. It's been all over the ballots, and if you are an investor, there has never been a better time to get in the game. However, as markets grow, so does the barrier to entry, which means it will take millions, if not billions, to invest, not to mention the risk of starting a new venture. That's what makes this opportunity so special. Transatlantic real estate is different, and their business model is very simple to understand. They buy land that supports marijuana grow operations and lease it to licensed high-paying tenants. Did you get that? You are investing in the landlord of a licensed marijuana farm. The best part is they're using crowdfunding to make it easy for the average person to get in before they take the company public. So, for a limited time, you can invest as little as $300 up to $10,000. Now, here's a pro tip. You must complete and confirm your application to participate in this opportunity. Don't be the person who missed out because you rushed and you didn't complete the process. So, to invest, go to MarijuanaStock.org. That's MarijuanaStock.org. Get in the game. Do it now. What else is going on? Oh, we've got recounts happening. So we've got a recount going on in Florida. Um, I don't know. Florida, Florida, Florida. Why can't you guys get it together when it comes to running elections? Many of you may remember in 2000, the Florida recount. It came down to 543 votes. I think that's how many it was. That is what put... George W. Bush over to win the presidency. But the country was waiting with bated breath for weeks as the Florida recount happened. And we learned about chads. Remember those? Hanging chads, pregnant chads, people examining cards, putting them up, the ballots up to the, to the light to see if they were pregnant, if that meant someone tried to, tried to punch it. There was a little punch card ballots. They got rid of those after that debacle. But it didn't completely solve the problems in Florida. Broward County, which is around, which is Fort Lauderdale, that area of South Florida, they have the worst supervisor of elections. Her name is Brenda Snipes. Now, Brenda Snipes is not the first awful supervisor of elections for that county. Before her was Miriam Oliphant, who was removed by Jeb Bush when he was governor for incompetence she was the worst also. That was back in 2002. Brenda Snipes has managed to screw up a bunch of elections and still get elected. In Florida, they elect the supervisor of elections. 
So, but she still kept getting elected. All right, whatever. But she has a history of incompetence also. What's going on now down in Florida? We have a recount for the governor's race, the Senate race, and for the ag commissioner, commissioner, the commissioner of agriculture. We're not going to talk about the ag race because I don't even know who's running in that. I don't follow that. But <laughs> um, we do know about the high-profile Senate race. That is the current governor, Rick Scott, against the incumbent Senator Ben Nelson. And then you have the rising star on the Democrat side, Andrew Killam, running for governor against Ron DeSantis, who is a Trumper. Well, in Florida, if you come within point five percent, half a percentage point, then there is a recount. And it looks as though that's as though that's what's happening right now. A, mach a machine recount has been ordered and it's underway. But the complaints that have come out of Republicans, some are legit. They are. No one's talking about not counting all the votes that are legally supposed to be counted. The initial complaint last week Marco Rubio was very vocal about this. He was live tweeting it. The governor, Rick Scott, filed a lawsuit against the Broward County Supervisor of Elections, Brenda Snipes, basically saying that they were not being transparent, which is legit. Florida has very specific election law with very specific instructions on the reporting requirements. And one of those reporting requirements is every 45 minutes, you're supposed to update what the vote count is. They weren't doing that. They did not finish counting. There was all kinds of problems. And so they went almost two whole days without updating where they were. That is a direct violation of Florida law. And the reason why they make you um, report like that, basically once an hour, is so that there isn't anything fishy going on. You can figure out, well, wait a minute, you said that there's you know, 10,000 ballots that have to be counted, left to be counted. But then in two hours, oh, all of a sudden there's 15,000. Well, where did those other 5,000 come from? I'm not saying that's what happened here. I'm using that as an example of why it's important, why the election law says you got to report every hour. You just want to make sure there's no shenanigans going on. So it's transparency. It was about transparency. They sued in court and they won that. They said, yeah, you know, hey, Broward County, you guys have to start reporting. That's what the law says. So there's been a history of incompetence coming out of Brenda Snipes. Now, I haven't said fraud, if you notice. I did not allege fraud. So far, there is no evidence of fraud in Florida. However, there is an unbelievable amount of incompetence. This Brenda Snipes, she's already been found to have broken election law in past elections. She destroyed ballots too soon. They freaking left off an amendment on a ballot completely. They had a, a, a medical marijuana amendment that was supposed to be on the ballot in 2016. That, that, they forgot to put that on there. They posted results too soon one year. They got sued by the uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz campaign, um, or it was, it was their election, her one of her primary elections, where they there was like over a thousand ballots that weren't counted. They didn't find them till a week later. I mean. It, it's the list is long. In this election, it was reported a, a school worker found a, a box of provisional ballots that were just hanging out that somebody forgot to take over 
There was questions about the custody, the chain of custody of these ballots. They were being transported in personal vehicles. I don't know if that was verified, but that was an accusation. Like, there's a lot that's going on here. But I don't think it's fair for the president to getting, be getting involved classifying it as fraud. That's a very different allegation. When you start talking fraud, then you start to imply that the integrity of the election itself is at, in question. <clears throat> that undermines democracy. That's not a good thing. I don't like that. That kind of talk. They're doing the same thing out in Arizona. A, you know, they're, the, the president and even the Republican National Senatorial Committee, who should know better, alleging fraud, because that's a close race too, between Martha McSally and Kristen Cinema. Cinema, the Democrat, is now leading. But what they don't tell you about Arizona is that 75% of the ballots cast there are mailed in. It takes a while to count those. There's nothing fishy going on in Arizona, as far as we know. But the president and his acolytes are trying to frame it that way so people will look at the elections as illegitimate if they lose, if the Republican loses. And that, that's just irresponsible. Irresponsible. So right now, it looks like Martha McSally is going to lose out there in Arizona. And there's a little tension between her campaign and Trump and some others who are trying to push this fraud narrative because it's just not true. They say, oh, well, they opened up emergency voting locations in the last minute. And yeah, but they don't tell you that two of the four emergency uh, locations were in Republican districts. They're just being very dishonest about how they're framing this. So, but back to Florida. So there's a couple of things that are interesting though, about what's going on in Florida. And this is going to be ongoing. This is not going to get resolved in the next couple of days. There's different deadlines that are coming up. And like I said, the machine recount is happening. But if after the machine recount, you find out that there's like, it comes down to 0.25%. So like a quarter of a percent difference between the two candidates. Then you go to a hand recount. And that's where you're going to start looking at the ballots more closely and making sure, you know, with human eyes, not machine, every ballot is, is valid. But here's something that's making people concerned also about an anomaly going on in Broward County. This didn't happen in any other county. In, out of the 67 counties in Florida. So there's something called an undervote. Now, there are times, and I've done it back in the day, if I don't know who the candidates are, or I'm unfamiliar, let's say, with the ballot initiative, I would rather not vote at all on that specific thing than vote for something I'm ignorant on. So in Florida, their ballot design has come into, has been an issue in the past as well. This was also an issue in 2000 when George W. Bush and Al Gore, you know, with that race being so close, this was an issue in Palm Beach County. Pat Buchanan, who was a third party candidate back in 2000, the, the way that the ballots were placed, the, 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 the placement of the names on the ballot was really confusing. So they think that there was a theory, there were thousands of people who voted for Pat Buchanan by accident but they thought they were voting for Al Gore because of the, it was a punch card then. And they were like, it's really weird. You can go back and Google and you can see what the old um, ballot looked like back in 2000 in Florida. And you can see how that could easily happen. They think they're punching the hole for, for Gore, but it was actually Buchanan. We'll never know, 
But that was another reason why they decided to get rid of the way that the ballot was designed and, and use a whole different system. Well, they still haven't really found a way to make this work. I mean, we can freaking land a rover on Mars and send pictures back millions of miles away from space, but we can't figure out in South Florida how to have, a, how to have an election without a problem like this. I, I just don't understand how we're still here in 2018. So in Broward County, they had an undervote where they think that people didn't see, they skipped over the Senate race because it was kind of blended in with this long ballot instruction. They had like one column that had all these instructions and they're in English and Spanish. So a lot of people, who's reading that? I'm not reading those instructions. They need to tell me how to vote. I go in, I see, you know, I know the candidates. This is the issue. I vote yes, no, or I pick the candidate, right? Who reads those? I don't read them. Well, they think that peop, a lot of people, because of where the Senate race was placed on the ballot, they just skipped over it because there were 26,000 fewer Senate votes than for governor. That doesn't even make any sense. That is a complete anomaly. Like I said before, sometimes people will skip a race if they don't want to vote for either person or <clears throat> they don't know the issue, whatever, they might skip it. But if in Florida, the rest of the counties, that only happened in 0.8% of ballots. In Broward County, it happened in 3.7% of ballots. You know, Broward is one of the most popular, uh, populous counties. So that's like 26,000 fewer Senate votes. So why would that be? That just doesn't make sense. And also, another thing that's weird about Florida is if you have a congressional race where there's no um, challenger. So in Florida 24, there was no challenger. The Democrat went unopposed. So they don't put the name on the ballot. They think that that also was confusing for people because it kind of had the Senate part blend in. That's fascinating to me. It could be the case. I mean, they had more people vote for the CFO, the chief financial officer of Florida. That is an elected position in that state. And the agriculture, agriculture commissioner. You're telling me, I don't know. Do you know who the ad commissioner is of your state? I don't. I mean, unless you're a farmer and that's like something specific, who the hell knows that? Or the CFO of your state? I mean, maybe people are more informed than I'm giving them credit for, but I find it hard to believe that more people were interested in a CFO and ad commissioner race than they were in the Senate race, which was high profile and $181 million was spent running it. So there's some something fishy going on down there in Florida, but I don't think... It was fraud. So far, there has been no evidence of it. If there was fraud, then you damn well better produce the evidence if that's the accusation you're going to make. It's a pretty serious one. It's one that Trump throws around a lot. Remember during 2016, he did the same thing that he wasn't sure that he was going to accept the legitimacy of the, of the results if he had lost. He was, he was putting that out there already. <laughs> There's a lot of impressionable people that are looking for conspiracy theories. And we don't need to undermine one of the most fundamentally important foundations of our country, which are free and fair elections. Come on. He knows exactly what he's doing with that crap. And it's irresponsible. Irresponsible. Incompetence in Florida? Absolutely. Fraud? I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. You better damn well have evidence if that's the case. And so far there isn't. Jeb Bush, by the way, he's called for the removal of Brenda Snipes. But it's a little tricky since the governor 
is also the Senate candidate. So it's a little tough this time around, but not say I, but there's certainly a case to be made. That's Florida. So we'll see. Maybe by the by the time we have next week's episode, we'll have some more results. But uh, we're reliving 2000, the year 2000, the recount, the recount. Georgia, really quickly on Georgia, a lot of people were rooting for Stacey Abrams to be the first black female governor. Um, doesn't look like it's going to happen. She's down 48.7 to 50.3 to Brian Kemp. Now, the problem with this race is that, well, in Georgia, if you if a candidate gets below 50%, if both candidates are below 50%, then you have a runoff. So that's why the what they're doing in Georgia is important because it because Brian Kemp has 50.3% right now. I think it's about 70,000 votes. But voter suppression was all over this race in Georgia. There was a lot of um, unsavory things going on there. And I'm sorry, there is a history of voter suppression in the South that we cannot deny. It is undeniable. So in this, I, I, there was just a lot of ugliness in that race. And that's always going to hang over what went on down there in Georgia. It's unfortunate. But you know what else happened in Georgia, which was interesting? Georgia 6, which is a suburb of Atlanta. That was Newt Gingrich's seat. It had been Republican for decades. That seat is now Democrat. That's right. Another one of those suburban district casualties all over the country that Republicans suffered. So don't tell me that never Trumpers and those of us in the Republican Party who are fed up with Donald Trump and don't accept his Trumpism, don't tell us that we're not out there. There were millions of voters who rejected Donald Trump. They rejected his tone. They rejected his dishonesty, his, his assault on the rule of law, and every aspect of common decency in this country. And they voted Republicans out in suburban districts all across this country. Those people didn't just become Democrats overnight. They were disaffected Republicans that were sending a message. And I was one of them. So pay attention, Republican Party, because you guys are in trouble. If you're losing suburban women and also millennials, by the way, they're the next generation and they represented 55% of the increase in voter turnout this time around. They were paying attention. The, the young folks came out. Usually they don't vote. They'll register, but they don't go and vote. This year they did 49% turnout. It was almost like presidential election year turnouts. So yeah, Republicans. Pay attention. Um, you know what else? <laughs> Speaking of Donald Trump and rejecting his ilk, anybody else see how, well, first of all, oh, I didn't mention, <laughs> well, I'll get to this first. Anybody else see how Trump behaved while he was in Europe over the weekend? And we're going to talk about this a little bit more with uh, Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, who's coming up in a few. But he was supposed to be in Paris to commemorate the 100-year anniversary of the armistice that ended World War I. And he was really in rare form 
he could did you, if you ever if you go and look at any of his any of the video or the pictures man body language experts are having a field day with this one his bromance apparently with Emmanuel Macron of France is over no more of those bro hugs and the and the handshakes and, and it was a lot colder this time Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron you should just see their faces when they look at Trump they're just thinking like this fucking guy you know, I wish I could have like a word bubble thing, like in comics, of what they're thinking when they look at him, because their faces say it all. But Donald Trump was supposed to go to an American battlefield cemetery for a very solemn ceremony to pay respects. And it's reported that there was wet, inclement weather that, per that prohibited his helicopter from flying out there. I don't know. That seems like bullshit to me. Because Macron and everybody else, other world leaders, they made it there. There was only light rain. What was that about? Now, I'm not going to question the military saying that they made the call. But, come on. That sounded like a bullshit excuse to me. He just didn't want to be out there in the rain. He didn't want to have to stand out there with Macron and Angela Merkel and the rest of them. He, he was throwing a temper tantrum. He, had, he didn't want to do it. And, but this is the guy that, you know, parades our military around as political props. But he couldn't muster up the, you know, the fortitude to go bear a little bit of rain to pay respects to our fallen soldiers there in World War One. Unbelievable. He was also two hours late, apparently, to the state dinner with Macron. How disrespectful is that? But Emmanuel Macron, to his credit. He went after the president in his remarks where he talked about nationalism. And I'm so glad. But the irony of that, did we ever think we'd see the day that the French were lecturing the, United, the, the U.S. about patriotism? But good for you, Emmanuel Macron, for going out there and saying it straight, making the point that nationalism is the opposite of patriotism. Yes, it is. And those are allies in Europe. They know all about the dangers of nationalism. So kudos to you, Emmanuel Macron, for the troll of the year <laughs> after Donald Trump there with that. I don't know how many of you saw last week I was on CNN on Sunday and um, the, the it wasn't this weekend, it was the last weekend, where this skit with Peter Davidson, you know, weekend weekend report, he basically made fun of a Navy former Navy SEAL who was running for Congress, Dan Crawford. He has an eye patch. He was injured in in battle, and he made fun of it, and it was a tasteless joke. And I was very pissed off about it, and I said so on air. My best friend, her husband, was Special Forces. He was serving in Afghanistan. He was hit with. Um, an IED and shrapnel from that bomb severed both his retinas and he's completely blind. That happened in 2011. And God bless him because he's one of the toughest guys I know. He didn't let that injury defeat him and his recovery was remarkable. I mean, he's still completely blind, but the way he's able to go through life and function every day is nothing short of just absolutely remarkable. He actually trained with a team of other wounded veterans to hike up 
Denali. And they were, they almost did it, but they had to get pulled from the mountain because of weather. I mean, you know, his name is Marty and he's an amazing guy. So the issue of, um, and he's, you know, just one of many amazing, resilient, wounded warriors in this country. They are heroes and they are off limits as far as I'm concerned for any kind of a joke. I've spent time at Walter Reed. I sat on the board of a wounded warrior organization called Team Extreme a few years ago. Uh, it, it's, I jumped out of an airplane actually in Hawaii with a wounded veteran. He was a quadruple amputee. And um, we did a charity event, raised money. And I actually jumped out of an airplane. It was amazing. I went skydiving um, with, uh, with Doc Rafetto, who was one of our honorees. It just, it was one of the most amazing and most proudest moments of my life was helping, being a part of an organization that did this kind of work for wounded veterans to help them get on their feet. But anyway, I digress. So the issue, I say all that to say that it's a very important issue to me. It's close to me. So I was very upset about Pete Davidson's mocking of Dan Crawford. And I believed that Dan Crawford was owed an apology. He ended up winning his congressional seat, by the way. And he handled this really remarkably. You know, he didn't play victim. He wasn't, you know, he, he just, he took it in stride and basically said that, you know, wounded, war, wounded veterans should never be a punchline, true. But after he won his election this weekend, Saturday Night Live had him as a special guest. And he did Weekend Edition with Pete Davidson. And if, for those of you who didn't see it, go back and watch the clip. It was, it was really fantastic. Talk about grace and decency, the way Dan Crawford handled it. Um, it was a wonderful mea culpa. And I'm, I, I'm pleased with the way it was handled. Very, very respectfully. And for those who don't know also, Pete Davidson's father was killed in 9-11. He was an FDNY fireman. And he killed, he, was, he died on 9-11. And Dan Crawford found a way to even incorporate honoring Pete Davidson's dad into that conversation. So it was, um, I, I was glad to see that. That was, that's the way it should be done. So kudos to Saturday Night Live and to Dan Crawford. Congratulations. And thank you for your service. Well, speaking of uh, heroes, my next guest, Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, is certainly one of those. He has an amazing career, 38-year veteran of the United States Army. He was also the commander of the U.S. Army in Europe, which was about 60,000 soldiers when he was there working with 51 countries as part of NATO. Prior to that, he was also the commander of the Initial Military Training Division, which basically trained soldiers and officers who came into the force. And he was also the commander of the 1st Armored Division and Task Force Iron, which was a force of about 30,000 soldiers, 40,000 Iraqi soldiers, and 65,000 Iraqi policemen when he was in northern Iraq. I'd say he's one of those generals that definitely knows more than Donald Trump. And he is my guest today on Honestly Speaking with Tara. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I am thrilled to have uh, Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling joining me on Honestly Speaking, especially since we just celebrated Veterans Day. Uh, what better person to have than someone as dist- that has such a distinguished career in the military? And uh, welcome. Well, you insist on I, that I call you Mark, so I will not, uh, no more Lieutenant General. You insist I call you Mark. So Mark Hurtling, welcome to Honestly Speaking. It is great to be here with you, Tara. And yes, I do insist on that. Uh, it, it's a mouthful when you try and throw all those lieutenant generals and everything together. So Mark is just fine, but it's great to be here with you this morning. Well, thank you. I just always want to make sure you receive the proper respect because you've earned it. Thanks. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you for your service. So with that, uh, we just recently celebrated Veterans Day over the weekend, and um, I know that you spoke down at a major VA hospital in Tampa. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, It it was a terrific event yesterday morning. Uh, Interestingly enough, my uh, fellow CNN commentator, John Kirby, asked me to do it. He did it last year. He's from Tampa. He he has relatives that work at the VA there, and it is one of the larger facilities uh, in the country and certainly in Florida. But I went down there yesterday. It's about a two-hour drive. And uh, The crowd was just amazing. Uh, I met a 93-year-old Marine veteran from uh, World War II who I think probably could have wrestled me to the ground. This guy was unbelievably, he's like a brick. I met a uh, a, uh, an Army veteran who actually was a Pearl Harbor survivor who not only fought in World War II but also fought in Korea. Uh, just unbelievable numbers of Vietnam veterans who, from all services, and uh, of course there was a smattering of Iraq and, and Afghan vets. And in fact, uh, a couple of folks surprised me, they came up to me and said they had served with me in Iraq, and two people came up and said they were part of my command in, uh, in U.S. Army Europe. So it was really an old home week, uh, not only being able to honor the veterans, uh, but honor their families as well. And, you know, it's interesting, Tara, because as we focused on what occurred in Paris over the weekend with the celebration or the commemoration, rather, of the 100-year history of World War I, the the focus was on armistice and celebration of victory during that war. But as a country, we don't call uh, that particular day, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, we don't call it Armistice Day. We call it Veterans Day here. So it is more of a, uh, not a celebration or commemoration of victories, but a celebration of those who made the victories possible. And, mm-hmm. and you know, it was just great to be around uh, fellow service members and their families yesterday. They, I, I think there were probably about five or 600 of them at the event. Uh, wow. So it was a whole bunch of fun and, and just really heartwarming to see the support the community gives to those veterans. And I think that's so important. I mean, personally, I think that every day should be Veterans Day because we need to thank the selfless uh, bravery of so many people that are in our armed forces that I just wonder if the if this country really, really, truly appreciates what they do for us every single day. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of Ronald Reagan's quote where he said that you know freedom is only one generation away from extinction right and every almost every veterans day i post that because i just think that it it's important for us as a country to just remember that especially in times like these where we have a commander-in-chief who uses our military in in ways that's more of a political stunt and to demonstrate bravado as opposed to the reverence of what our our military actually represents but um 
Well, you know, if I, if I can yeah. comment on that, sure. I think it's fascinating uh, during this last midterm election that, that you were so involved in commenting on uh, the, last week, uh, the number of veterans that were elected. Yes, uh, and women. A largest entry class for Congress in a very, very long time. I think there were 15 or 16 veterans, many of them women, and all of them took a pledge uh, to work in a, bi a bipartisan manner. Uh, so these are folks who have served the country before. They understand what the Constitution is all about. And even if they were running on the Democratic ticket or the Republican ticket, they vowed to work with each other and build consensus as opposed to continuing this divide that we're seeing and experiencing in our nation's politics today. I think that's a great point. And also, it, it I think, marks the um, largest amount of veterans elected since we became an all-volunteer military. Right. Yeah. That's correct. Yep. Yep. Um, and I think you're right. I think that dynamic is desperately needed uh, in, in the Congress, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing how they are they are able to govern. Maybe some of the others will take a take a cue <laughs> from Well, I hope so. I hope they, they drive the change, and, and they have all been trained, no matter what service they come from. They've all been trained in leadership fundamentals. So I think uh, – uh, more so than perhaps many others that have been elected, they, they will be, be able to lead the change as opposed to just manage and drive the change. Absolutely. Um, do, have you seen any significant changes in the Trump administration when it comes to the VA? We know that there were, you know, there's been problems with the VA for many, many years, not just one administration or the other, but the controversy during the Obama administration with failures in the VA um, was a major campaign issue going into 2016. Uh, the Trump administration says that, hey, look, we're, we're really reforming things. Things are getting better. Have you seen that? Are there real tangible examples of reforms to, um, that, are, that have improved? Well, from an analytical point of view, not a punditry point of view, no, I have not. Mm. And in fact, talking to fellow veterans, uh, they have seen uh, somewhat of the status quo. Uh, several laws have been passed uh, that actually were started in the Obama administration because of the problems that were happening uh, within the VA and, and former VA Secretary Bob McDonough, who actually is a West Point classmate of mine, actually started driving the changes in hiring practices, firing practices, and the ability to, to hold people accountable and hold them to standard. Uh, that's the important part uh, that I, I think most Americans don't realize about the VA, that it is the largest government bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. It's huge. It uh, they not only take care of sick people and, and are, are the wounded war veterans and people who are suffering uh, after they've served the country, but they also run all of our cemeteries. They actually provide uh, money for those who are going to using the GI Bill for advanced education. So this organization is unbelievably large. It has to function under government regulations. And uh, truthfully, as they try and recruit people to work in the VA, they often are recruiting against uh, in the medical field people who are paying a lot more. So they have a lot of challenges. Uh, certainly the, the, the VA administration is doing their best to serve veterans and sometimes they don't always get it right. But I have seen, uh, since I've retired actually an advancement in attempting to hold them accountable and hold them to standards. And even though the vast majority of those in the office of veteran affairs do their unbelievable best. Uh, to try and serve veterans. Sometimes there are some bad apples that need to be fired, just like in any organization. And I think the administrators of the VA are getting after that. 
But when you say, has the Trump administration specifically done anything? I mean, they are touting they have done several things, but truthfully, I'm not sure you could point to any specific item where you can say this has made a significant difference for our veterans. There are a lot of veterans uh, trying to contribute to help the VA get better. Uh, and there's a lot of real selfless servants within the organization. But it's it's a steady grind just to improve the treatment of our veterans and, and the ability to support them. Well, it's a Leviathan. And I always it use is. the VA as an example of if you, you think you want um, Medicare for all or single payer health care, just look at the disaster that the VA was in that respect. That's what we're looking at. And that's, you know, a fraction of what it would be if it was for the entire country. The bureaucracy alone just does not lend itself to be efficient. And I don't think our veterans should suffer as a result of bureaucratic inefficiency. So I'm glad that you mentioned um, that there are, you know, the issues that are still going on there and, and that it's, you know, there's no magic wand that in a year and a half the Trump administration is going to come in and fix. Because I, like I said, I think that Trump likes to point to our military and our troops um, and use them as, as props oftentimes. And, and I wanted to kind of the record set straight on that for someone like yourself who works every day in that sphere. Um, yeah. Moving on. uh in the same vein, kind of as uh, the Veterans Day issue, um, President Trump was in Europe over the weekend, which was supposed to be a solemn commemoration, remembrance of World War One, you know, and, and with our allies there. And he skipped the visit to one of the American battlefield cemeteries out there because of rain. Now, A, how did you feel about that? And B, do you believe that it was, in fact, a military decision not to fly him out there? Um, yeah, let, let me comment first on on Europe writ large and and World War Two or I'm sorry, World War One specifically. You know, in the military terror, we do these things called battle staff rides where we go to different battlefields and we learn the lessons and the history and we try and apply them to uh, today's leadership and operational capacity. So I have been personally to almost having served in Europe for a good part of my career. I spent uh, 12 years serving in Europe as part of my 38 year career. So I know Europe pretty well, I think. And I have been to almost every major battlefield of both World War One and World War Two, as opposed to uh, 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 also including some of the Napoleonic battlefields. Mm. But the, the battlefield uh, that the president did not see uh, on Saturday because he chose not to go there for whatever reason um, was the battlefield of Bella Wood, uh, where the Marines actually worked alongside uh, the U.S. Army, British Army, French Army, in really cementing one of their greatest victories and part of their history as a Marine Corps. It, it, it bumps up on the backside of the hill of the Marne Cemetery, which is where the president was supposed to uh, visit. Uh, that cemetery has a couple of thousand soldiers from both World War I and World War II. And when I tell you, having visited 18 of the American battlefield cemeteries throughout Europe, Every single one of them teaches lessons that are unforgettable, that once you walk that hallowed ground and see the graves and understand what these young men and in some cases women fought for uh, and what they died for, it will bring tears to your eyes and it makes you a different person. Mm -hmm. So I was actually looking forward to hoping 
that the president would go to that particular cemetery at, at Marne, uh, which is on the backside of the Marine historical site of Bella Wood, along with perhaps General Kelly and maybe even Secretary Mattis, because as Marines, they could really inform him of how the Marines were formed in that field. Sure. Uh, he didn't go. And that was unfortunately a missed opportunity for him to learn a great deal about what connects Europe to the United States, what causes that transatlantic bridge that is so critically important. Now, he did go to the much smaller cemetery at Cerezne on uh, outside of Paris on Sunday, um, and he gave a speech, but I'm not sure he heard the history of that particular cemetery. There, there are, you know, thousands of U.S. soldiers buried in the fields across Europe. Uh, my favorite cemetery is a, is one, and if I can, you know, kind of go down a rabbit hole for a second, yeah, is sure. one at a place called Margraten, oh, in which almost no one goes to, and it's in the Netherlands. And uh, my wife and I went there one Christmas Eve thinking we would be able to pay a visit before we went to visit the ambassador uh, on Christmas Day. And we didn't expect anybody else to be there. There were literally hundreds of Dutch citizens on Christmas Eve in a driving rain, laying flowers, writing notes. And every, citizens of the every citizen of the town of Margraten had adopted a grave of an, of an American soldier. We talked to one old man who had had a grave for 40 years uh, of an American by the name of Arthur Hood from Texas, and he had visited it once a week for 40 years. Uh, because that particular, he, he adopted that grave and he said that those soldiers were the ones that gave the Dutch citizens liberty. That kind of connection you don't understand unless you spend That's right. a lot of time in Europe talking to the European and seeing their perspective. Now, the other thing I'd say about uh, the, the activities this weekend, the Europeans lost 20 million people to that war, World War I. We lost about 120,000 about, I think it's 117,000. We got there late. They had been fighting that war from 1914 to 1918. We didn't get there till 19, we, the United States did mm -hmm. not get there till 1917. So the ability for us to contribute to that war, to contribute to freedom, I think is something that President Trump needed to understand that it's not all about money or fiscal responsibility or the economy. Sometimes it's just sharing your values. And I think President Macron made that very clear in his speech on uh, Sunday with the president in attendance. Well, that's actually a good segue um, into the, the dynamic now. Um, you make a great point about those shared values and the dynamic about um, how that's changed somewhat now with, with Donald Trump as our president, because I just don't think he has the capacity to appreciate what those shared values mean and the significance of it, nor does he possess the humility needed to learn about that and have those types of convictions. Um, I'll say, I will make that editorial comment about that. Um, but before I say that, just one other thing about Margaretten that I that I'd learned um, I had no idea that we had an adopt a grave program with our European allies for these right. uh, cemeteries I thought that was amazing and it really was re very moving as I was researching it and also that there in that specific grave site there were 172 African-American soldiers right. that were buried there that there was not much history on that the Dutch citizens who oversee that program are really making an effort to try to identify who exactly they were 
were and a little bit more of their history so that they can um, connect with their families, which I thought was um, really an amazing, amazing act of respect from from our European allies over there. Just wanted to see yeah, and that. and let me carry that history on a little bit more because what those African American soldiers were doing in Margraten was in fact, they had been sent there. They were originally truck drivers. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were almost always working in the logistic fields as a race. Uh, They were not allowed at times to work in the combat arms field. So uh, when there was a need to dig graveyards for those who had died at the at the Battle of the Bulge, which was nearby, they enlisted African-American soldiers to be grave diggers. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then when the Battle of the Bulge started actually becoming more intense and more fierce, those grave diggers became infantry soldiers to help uh, save Bastogne and St. V and some of the other towns around that area. But they went back uh, to Margraten when they were buried there. And the Dutch citizens had all known these people because they had lived among them for so many weeks. Uh, and they were closer to the many of the African-American soldiers that were part of that force. So it's just really a moving story. Mm-hmm. And it's just another anecdote of our history that makes us so proud uh, to be the mix of people that we are, that sometimes uh, I think our current administration is not understanding as much as they should. Indeed. Um, so back to Macron and and the the speech that he gave over the weekend, which I interpreted it as almost a rebuke of President Trump and his recent uh, proclamation, of proudly being a nationalist. I think that he does not either understand what nationalism is, it's not patriotism, uh, and needed to be reminded, which is um, somewhat what uh, French President Macron did. And what do you think about that? Did you, did you, did that strike you as a particular, a particularly um, pointed statement by Macron to address Trump and and the rise of nationalism in Europe? Absolutely. There was no nuance about it. Uh, and for whatever Macron's uh, uh, favorability ratings are among the French people, he is a student of history and he knows Europe. And th- that's the other interesting piece that I think has to be pointed out. Uh, having commanded U.S. forces in Europe, I-, I can tell tell you that there are 49 different countries in Europe with about 73 different languages and about 180 different fault lines. So this is not one blob of people and culture. There are very different uh, uh, peoples throughout the continent in these 49 countries that exist there. Mr. Macron understands that the unity that has existed in Europe for the last 70 years because of the NATO alliance and more recently because of the establishment of the European Union has caused perhaps not even uh, just economic advancements, but increased security advancements. Now, this is a a continent that also has several uh, what what we in the military call frozen conflicts. We all know about Ukraine and what's happened in Crimea and the eastern part of Ukraine called the Donbass. Very few Americans have ever heard the term Transnistra or uh, Norgano-Karabakh which are all other provinces within Europe where the Russians have actually expanded their attempts to break up cultures. Uh, And and that's not even considering what happened in Georgia in 2008, uh, where two provinces of Georgia were overtaken by the Russians, Abkhazia and South Ossetia. So there are various places within Europe that are right now extremely tense. And these cultural wars, these... uh, 
attempts at nationalism uh, versus uh, more of an approach toward internationalism or globalism are really frightful for many people in Europe. They see it. They live it. Every day, the, the people in the Baltic states uh, are threatened by cybersecurity issues, by advances within their sphere of influence. So there are, there are many hot conflicts. And since the fall of the, of the, of the Soviet Union, the, the Soviet Union mm-hmm. and the wall between East and West, what I'll tell you, Tara, it has become actually much more dangerous in Europe than it ever was before. I mean, in the 1990s and before, it was clearly one side versus another. Today, there are issues of human trafficking, terrorism, cybersecurity, uh, like I said, frozen conflicts that are separating the people of Europe. And people like leaders like Macron and Merkel understand that, and they want to hold uh, the security together so they don't experience the kind of tragedies they, they felt in World War One and World War Two. Well, that would also explain um, if, if you ever just watch the body language. I, I'm sure body language experts have a field day with President Trump when he's with these world leaders. Right. Just the way that they look at him um, because because they just they know that we're dealing with someone who is just willfully ignorant about these nuances and about right. these things. And is just using sound bites to attack NATO over, you know, the, the amount of funding that they do and, and um, you know, other things that and just using language that has significant meaning when the when it comes from the lips of the president of the United States, like this nationalism talk. But it also, you know, there's something else going on w- with Russia. Um, you know, the, the fact that this president seems to be so friendly with Russia, I'm sure scares the bejesus out of our European allies. Um, but yet NATO still carries on. I know a couple of weeks ago there was a major NATO exercise called Trident Junction War yeah. Exercises that took place in the Arctic and Baltic Sea areas with Norway because of its it intended to send a message to Russia. Hey, we still know what you guys are doing. Um, we're still preparing in case you get out of hand. No, absolutely. And in fact, uh, every once in a while, uh, a major NATO or European exercise bubbles to the forefront in the American press. But, uh, you know, when I was commanding U.S. Army Europe, uh, the last year I was there in 2012, there were we had over 400 uh, security exercises uh, with different nations. Uh, there were some that had, you know, two or three nations, us, the Brits and the Germans. There were some that had 17 nations, like we had one in Ukraine before the crisis there that had, it was one of the largest exercises we had. But all of those were not only for a approach to deterrence of a common threat, but they're also uh, geared toward the readiness of combined forces in Europe. Now, what I'll tell you is the military continues to conduct operations and continues to, to conduct these training exercises and events that pull the militaries closer together. But the elements of national power are just not the military. Uh, you know, you have to include the economic sphere, which seems to be the only uh, area that Mr. Trump is interested in. Right. There's also the diplomatic sphere. And that's where uh, Clearly, Trump's you know, the, not interested in that part of it. <laughs> yeah, he he's, doesn't seem to be interested. But then there's also the informational sphere. What is going on? What is being communicated? What kind of uh, collaboration are we having with our allies? And that informational sphere, which puts the current administration at the forefront, seemingly knocking NATO at every opportunity, 
insulting our allies at every opportunity. It, it, it just, you know, for an administration that says they're, they're backing the military so strongly, anytime you have a public information domain that is, that is doing the kind of damage that this administration is with, our, with our, all of our allies, not just our European allies, it counters the efforts of the military and the diplomats. So, you know, any right, president, they, they, they can't trust us, right? There's, right? there's almost this. Can we trust them with this kind of information? Are we sharing this kind of intel information? I mean, after, just the coziness of Trump with the Russians and what happened when they were in the Oval Office, for goodness sakes, the day after he fired Comey, um, revealing, you know, Israeli intelligence information. I, you know, I, I, I can understand why our European allies are a bit uh, hesitant which well, is if, something if, that if, I don't think they've experienced before. With yeah, the and I think, you know, going back to that comment I made that we have 49 different countries in Europe, a large percentage of those lived under Russia during the old Soviet Union days. They know what Russia does. Right. If you talk to the folks in Romania and Hungary and Bulgaria and the Czech Republic, they will tell you they never want to be friends with Russia again. So when they see our president cozying up to Mr. Putin, especially because of Putin's expansionist view of the world and his strategy to, uh, to broaden his sphere of influence over the last 10 years, they're concerned. But, and, I, and I still have a lot of engagements and, and commentations or you know, correspondence rather with my European friends uh, in government and military positions. They were very concerned about what was going on with our government. And they were seeing that as a lean towards something they never expected from the United States. But truthfully, Tara, what's interesting to me, within the last week, I've received a lot of statements from our European friends that said, okay, the elections show that what is happening does not really represent who you are, and you're getting back on track. That's so I think uh, that was something that Mr. Macron took into consideration, too, when he made his statement that, hey, Let's let's get out of this abnormality of bashing each other and let's get back to cooperation and collaboration. Wouldn't that be nice with <laughs> um, in, in that vein? Then I think it's important. And, you know, we have a, uh, about five minutes left or so. I want to get a couple things in. So in your opinion right now, what do you see as the biggest threat to the national security of this country? Is it Russia? Is it China and their asymmetrical warfare? Is it North Korea? I mean, there was a story today in the New York Times about North Korea deceiving us. Right. No kidding. What a shocker that is. With um, you know, they have ballistic missile facilities that are active and up and running. Um, what do you see as you look at this now as the biggest emerging threat? Well, if if you were to walk into the Pentagon today, and I don't advise that because it is a confusing place. Uh, <laughs> They would, they would tell you that they can't just look at one threat. Uh, there are myriad threats, some more dangerous than others, some existential in nature. And I would put uh, personally, and I know what some of the Pentagon intelligence folks are thinking right now, uh, Russia and cybersecurity are our two most existential threats. Mm -hmm. uh, Russia is attempting to uh, break apart our our alliances with various nations in the world. They're attempting to uh, influence our democratic institutions. And all that goes to the existence of the United States. Cybersecurity, when you think of that, you know, we think of the election hackings or we think about the reports on how uh, different hackers got into military or State Department machines. Uh, 
What I'd tell you is the cybersecurity experts are looking at something much greater than that. How, how would uh, a cyber threat affect our national industries? How would it cause us to uh, go completely under if, say, for example, I'm now working in the healthcare industry, if the healthcare industry writ large suffered a major cyber attack? Mm -hmm. uh, what would it do to the existence of the United States and how would we counter that? So those or two things are really... Right. Yeah. Infrastructure. If they came, if they shut down our, uh, you know, our electrical grid or, or something or a nuclear plant or something like right. that. Right. Yeah. Well, you know what, what was interesting? I was in the Pentagon on 9-11 and uh, we suddenly started realizing we needed to make a, a infrastructure threat uh, security matrix. What pieces of infrastructure across the United States would be threatened by a terrorist attack? And Tara, I would tell you, it would boggle your mind to see how many pieces of infrastructure, if one or two of them were affected, it would affect uh, our national security and our national defense. So, so those are the big existential threats. You certainly have uh, a China, China that's becoming uh, more of a regional power, and that's somewhat critical because of the way they're threatening us and threatening their neighbors. The missile threat from, from North Korea is certainly important, but it's not an existential threat. We could do something about that very easily. Uh, what I'd also say, and this has kind of dropped off the radar completely in the current administration, climate change. Uh, when I was in the Pentagon, there was a good argument saying how uh, many of our national security issues are directly related to what is happening uh, with climate and how oceans are rising, droughts are occurring, windstorms are, are uh, occurring in different countries that are causing immigration and migration. Uh, so that's something that even though you don't think of that as an area where the military would be particular interest, particularly interested, it is something that affects our land, sea, basing air operations. So yeah, we have to be, those in the military have to be very concerned about that. I'm so kind of glad I, that you brought that up only because I was one of those people along with a lot of other Republicans <laughs> during the Obama administration that kind of scoffed at the idea that climate change was considered a you know national security threat and something that the military should be involved in. Right. But, you know, because initially you were like, get the hell out of here, climate change. You know, we, we got other more important things to, go, <laughs> to worry about here that yeah. are more immediate. But it's but I'm glad that to hear it coming from you, that there is legitimacy to that. And it wasn't just some, you know, Obama progressive changes to the military nope. type of thing that that there is a legitimate military concern um, to that to that issue if so. you if you were to go to the military of either Sweden or Norway and uh, ask them what is your biggest concern about threats in the future they will talk about climate change because of how it affects the ability of other countries to use the northern passages to use submarine approaches, to use air approaches. So yeah, I mean, it's climate is certainly a consideration in any military operation. And uh, for some countries, this is more dangerous than others. When I was in Iraq, they were experiencing an unbelievable drought in the northern part of Iraq, which was influencing their uh, ability to employ their people. Because of that, and it had been going on for several years, because of that, we had more terrorists because they were trying to make a living by planting bombs instead of farming. So there's these second and third order effects that are, that are connected to climate change that I think the uninitiated would not understand. 
Well, that leads me into uh, briefly talking a little bit about the status of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We really don't hear about that uh, in the in the news as much anymore. People need to realize that we still do have several thousand troops, thousands of troops in theater in Iraq and Afghanistan. And most notably, uh, the, the Utah mayor, Brent Taylor, who was recently tragically killed in Afghanistan in a green on blue attack, which is an insider attack. Um, just you just talk to me briefly a little bit about what where you see the state of play in Afghanistan in particular and the the rise of the insider attacks going on there that I don't think we hear enough about and whether you find that to be a concern like have we really moved the needle in Afghanistan yeah I, let me talk Iraq first I'll do that very briefly uh, I am very uh, inspired by what has been happening in Iraq over the last year plus. And now remember a couple of years ago when I first retired, I used to go on with Wolf Blitzer on CNN and he used to talk about how all hell was breaking loose in Iraq. And I said, it's because of the government. Mm -hmm. Well, the government has changed and the government is much more stable now. They've now had within the last month, they've had their fifth election where they had an orderly transfer of power. And the guy who is now president of Iraq is an old friend of mine. uh, And he is a true patriot that sees all sides of Iraq. He's a Kurd. Uh, I was just going to so say, Iraq is this the is, influence of the Kurds? Because I, that's they've always kind of been the the democratic base there that's kept, kept things together. Um, so the, the expansion of the influence of the Kurds, I, well, I wanted to see I, if that was... Yeah, I just think that an approach toward a representative government is uh, positively affecting that country. So even though I will say that Iraq is heading, in, in my view, a very, very good direction, and I'm happy about that, and I'm watching that very closely, there is still a threat from terrorists in that country, and that threat will continue to be there. They had five or six bombs in Baghdad within the last two weeks that no one in the West knows about, but it's reported in the uh, Arabian news networks. Uh, So they are still fighting terrorists, but it's become much more stable. Now, transitioning over to Afghanistan, a whole different problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, Their government has not done the kinds of things they need to do yet to collaborate and and establish a uh, representative government, if you will. And that's because (laughs) it's just hard to do in that country because of the various influencers of different families and tribes and and uh, and power brokers, warlords uh, that that own literally own different parts of the country. But having said that, I think there is the potential for uh, uh, peace talks with the Taliban uh, under the right conditions and under the strong leadership of the Afghan uh, government, um, we are still fighting there and fighting hard. Uh, the insider threat uh, the, uh, you know, has been a continuing problem in that country, more so than it was in Iraq during our time there. Uh, and that's just because of some of the culture issues and some of the attempts by various power brokers to influence the government and to cause the United States to do things that we wouldn't normally do. Um, Do you think that we should withdraw? uh, I think we're going to see within the next year or so some plans to transition, completely transition power and security to the Afghan government and the Afghan people. Um, You know, this is one of those things I'm torn because we have been there long enough, truthfully. As a military person, I would say 
We've been there long enough. We've given enough of our blood and treasure and money mm-hmm. to that country. But at the same time, um, they are somewhat dependent on us to continue to improve their security so that their people can live a normal life. Uh, so the humanitarian in me says we need to continue to help them. But at the same time, the question is, how much help do we give before they want it more than we do? That's always the question. That was the question in Iraq. And I think the past administration took the right strategy by saying, force them to want it more than we do. And eventually they did, although there was unbelievable consequences in the period where, they, where the Iraqis continued to fight. Afghan, uh, Afghanistan is a different problem set. Yeah. And it, and it always and it always has been, which is why it's it's never been quote conquered. And I just think that it's enough is enough now with us in Afghanistan. It's it, at some point we've we've got to get out. Enough is enough. Um, before we go, I've got to address real quickly with you the the, the deployment to the southern border. Um, mm-hmm. I worked on immigration issues for seven years. Um, you know, I know a lot about the the border 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 patrol. And the dynamics down there, it's a very complicated issue. But the idea of sending active duty troops to the southern border is something that I think most Americans do not fully understand what the implications of that are. Personally, I think it's a political stunt on the part of the president. The timing of it was very suspicious to me before midterm. He used it as a wedge issue. Um, As your experience of a commander in the army, um, how did you feel about that southern border deployment? And just explain a little bit exactly what the what the military can and cannot do in under domestic laws like posse comitatus. Well, as as a military a former military guy, I tell you, I was truthfully very suspicious, too, of both the timing and the approach. I became more suspicious when I watched uh, Pentagon spokespeople uh, try and explain what they were doing, because they were trying to put their best face on an order that they had been given. Uh, the and they forces weren't happy that, about it, right? Like, let's be uh, honest. The Pentagon was kind of, didn't they push back on that because they were like, I, uh, are you sure? <laughs> yeah, I, I've had some discussion with those in the Pentagon I won't go into those discussions, but they were trying to what we call scope the mission to try and if if OK, if we're given this sandwich to eat, uh, how do we put some something on it to make it taste a little better? I'll put it that way. <laughs> uh, but when another government orga- organization, in this case, Department of Homeland Security, requests forces and the, the leaders of the government, in this case, the administration, the president says, yes, I want to support DHS then the Secretary of Defense tries to scope it the best way possible. Uh, So the forces that are there uh, are there to support border operations. That has happened before. I'll tell you, Tara, as a young captain, I was involved uh, in in guarding uh, Cubans as part of the Cuban-Haitian refugee crisis in the late 1970s, early 1980s. So I have done these kind of missions. Sometimes active duty forces are needed to do these kind of missions. But in this case, what I tell you, I'm suspect. Uh, uh, you know, the, the president was painting a word picture for most Americans where they saw active duty soldiers with drawn rifles standing shoulder to shoulder at the border, pointing at immigrants coming toward uh, the ports of entry. That's not what is happening. That's not what can legally happen. Uh, Soldiers cannot go on border patrols. They can support those who do. So 
the entire word picture and the propagandizing, if you will, of what the mission was, was just wrongheaded. Um, Pasa Comitatus does uh, require that active duty soldiers do not participate in any type of law enforcement operations. Now, those rules can be amended to a degree, but uh, in this case, there was no need to do that. Uh, having talked to a couple of young soldiers who are now on the border, they're not doing much. Andy. And they realize that this is kind of faded from the headlines. And it's unfortunate that next week, many of them are going to be spending time away from their family when they really don't have to when Thanksgiving takes place. Uh, they're living in, in very tough conditions. Soldiers can do that. They're used to that. They will readily do that when they believe in the mission. But when the mission starts to appear to be a little bit political, uh, that's when you draw the wrath of the young troopers. And I think uh, if we have reporters on the border, and we do already, who are taking pictures and doing interviews and trying to find out what the missions are, uh, that's a good thing. I, I saw a young female captain engineer who I actually know, uh, I actually know her husband, um, uh, who's also active duty soldier, who is now remains at his post uh, taking care of their children while she's deployed with her engineer company, give a very good interview to reporters staying in her lane, saying we're here to support the operations. I can't talk about what else we're going to do. We don't quite know all the elements of the mission. And I got to tell you, you talk about a great public affairs effort. She was doing exactly what she needed to do not to become politicalized. You made a point on CNN that you um, noticed that there were more political affairs officers down there than when you were commanding troops in Iraq. Yeah, they had they had quite a bit of political um, uh, public affairs units, uh, ones that report on what soldiers are doing. I'm not sure if that was to uh, provide. Um, well, let, let me put it this way. I think that was more to protect the soldiers that were there to make sure that no one used them for political purposes to report on exactly what they were doing as opposed to standing guard at the border. Uh, so I think you could you could see that as a dual edged sword. Mm. But, yeah, it was there were four times, four or five times as many public affairs deployed units than what I had in northern Iraq for a 30,000 person task force. That's very interesting. Um, well, I've I've held you long enough and I appreciate you being so gracious with your time. There's just two burning questions I have to ask you and then I'll let you go. OK. One. How long does Mattis last? Defense Secretary Mattis. Oh, I I won't even speculate on that. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's that's between two people, and I certainly wouldn't want to insert myself in the middle of that. But it, there, it is interesting to watch it, isn't it? It, it certainly is. It was kind of a tongue-in-cheek question because I knew you weren't really going to answer that. Yeah. I just wanted to get it on the record. And then finally, what are your top three must-see military movies? Oh, that's way too easy. There you go. Uh, the first one is uh, Saving Private Ryan. Of course. <laughs> the second one you may not have ever heard of, and it's called, um, uh, oh gosh, it's with uh, Bacon. Um, taking ch I think it's called Taking Chances, or Taking Chance. With Kevin Bacon? Kevin Bacon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's something chance. And I can't remember uh, what it is, but it's about um, 
a, a young soldier, a young Marine actually, who has to uh, escort a body uh, after that soldier was killed or the Marine was killed, I think in Iraq, uh, I saw it a very long time ago, uh, back to his home. And it tells the story of transporting and escorting a body. Um, and then the, the third uh, favorite movie is uh, We Were Soldiers mm. uh, with uh, Mel Gibson, yep. uh, a true story about General Hal Moore and his fight in the Yadrang Valley. Uh, and Joe Galloway, a reporter who was there with him. Uh, and it, it, what I'll, I'll share with you a, a quick story on that one. Uh, I actually was uh, attending a course that the military offers as soon as you're promoted to Brigadier General that we all have to go to. And both, uh, well, Hal Moore was already sick. He was not there, but Joe Galloway was actually one of our guest lecturers, who's the reporter that was with uh, General Moore. And the movie had just come out, so a couple of us went next door to a movie theater one night and watched the movie uh, We Were Soldiers with the guy who was in the screen, sitting in the back, just drinking a Coke and eating popcorn like <laughs> we were a bunch of couple normal people. But it was pretty good to get the play-by-play -play commentary by a guy who was being portrayed in the movie, which was pretty cool. How about that? Well, that's that's amazing. One, just two, I'm, you know, obviously looking at it from a more a different perspective, but I love Crimson Tide. Yep. Great <laughs> movie. That, that's a great movie. I watch it every time it comes on. And um, the movie The Siege with Denzel Washington and yep. Bruce Willis that came yep. out in 1998, I believe. So it was pre 9-11. Um, and it was also written by Lawrence Wright, who is a, an, <clears throat> excuse me, an amazing writer. But it really challenges the domestic use of the military to combat yeah. terrorism narrative. And I just find it, watching it 20 years later, those discussions and the conflict in that movie and what it raises to be prescient, um, very prescient for then and relevant for now. So that's Yeah, and I'm okay, I'm going to give you one more then. As okay, long as go you, ahead. Because I'm a big Denzel Washington fan. Yeah. And one of his movies uh, with Meg Ryan that didn't receive a whole lot of... Oh, Courage uh, Under Fire? Courage Under Fire. Yes. Uh, if you've been to combat, and I have, and you understand how different people tell different stories of what happened, uh, but also the effects of post-traumatic stress uh, on young people who have unfortunately experienced the inhumanities of combat, Courage Under Fire is also a very good movie to watch. Well, there you have it, folks. So if you <laughs> feel like, you know, watching some military movies there, you've got it from from an expert there. Yeah, um, we went from we went from threats to Siskel and Abert real quick. That's right. We? Well, <laughs> that's the beauty of, of my conversations, I think, on Honestly Speaking, <laughs> is that I, I always like to end it on a, a little bit of a lighter note, especially when we talk about pretty significant topics that are serious for and it also humanizes the people who are having the conversation you know people need to know that lieutenant generals who've served 38 years in our military are real people and have a sense of humor and have a real life when they're civilians <laughs> well i hope so i hope so okay thank you, you. you always you always take your job but you never take yourself seriously right that's right absolutely yeah. um thank you mark hurtling it's been such a pleasure thank you again for your service and i hope to have you back because i i want to talk about another on another occasion when we have more time about the changes in the training in the military yep. and um a little bit more about um some of the rules of engagement under the president of uh, president obama and what happened in iraq and afghanistan with that i, I would love i'm fascinated by all of that but we didn't have time for it today okay <laughs> Yeah, we we'll certainly love to come back. back and talk about that. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Thanks, Tara. That was such an amazing experience um, interviewing Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling. I just have such such respect for 
people who serve in our military. And I thought for this this week's way to end the show would be another way to support our veterans. And the holidays are coming, and why not support veteran-owned businesses? When I was researching this, I found out that um, half of all World War II veterans and 40% of Korean War veterans became entrepreneurs when they came back. Today, that there's about 5.5 million businesses in the United States that are veteran-owned. That's like 7%. I think that's fantastic. But I think we have to support them. And a lot of times people, they don't know exactly how to do that. Well, I came across um, this website that basically serves as a clearinghouse. It, it can, it's like a directory um, where you can find veteran-owned businesses. It's called buyveteran.com. You can go there and you can find out if there's a veteran-owned business near you, um, what kind of business. It's, I think that's great because we should really be patronizing veteran-owned businesses. I also discovered that there is a credit union called um, PenFed, I think it is, that has a specific program that helps veterans with investment money. If they need seed money to get their businesses off the ground, they have a support system, that's fantastic. So if you want to support veterans, try buyveteran.com and see if you have a veteran business near you. Also, there's another resource called Elite Meat where industry leaders get to connect with and they can hire and they can mentor um, elite veterans. So like the fighter pilots, special forces guys, Navy SEALs, those guys who are transitioning out of the military and want to get into the private sector. I thought that was fantastic too. So if you're looking to hire a veteran, you can look at Elite Me. If you're looking to buy from veteran-owned businesses or employ them, you got buyveteran.com. So let's support our, let's support our veterans. They've served, and let's give back to them. That's my feel-good story of the week this week. So that's it for this edition of Honestly Speaking. Stay tuned for whatever the hell happens between now and next week. Who knows? But in the meantime, you can reach out to me on social media uh, at Honestly Speaking, Honestly, I'm sorry, at Honestly underscore Tara on Twitter. That's the podcast Twitter page. Tweet at me, ask me questions, suggestions, people you'd like to see on the show, topics you'd like me to talk about, send it to there. Interact with me on the Honestly Speaking podcast Twitter. That's honestly underscore Tara. Also, my personal Twitter page is at Tara Setmayer. And Instagram, you can DM me and my stories. And you can reach it, reach me there if you're not into Twitter. I am on Instagram at the Tara Setmayer. Thanks so much for listening and Tune until next week.